Welcome to Season 13 of the Kol Hadash Podcast, featuring the literary readings and responses, as well as, of course, the sermons of Rabbi Adam Shalom. Season 13 episodes are from the High Holiday Services from the Jewish year 5784 or 2023 CE. And the theme this year is relationship status. It's complicated. There are many reasons why the relationship between American Jews and Israel has become strained over the last several years. I blame Marie Kondo. (laughs) Do you remember Marie Kondo, the declutterer? What was her mantra to make your life better? If something does not spark joy, get rid of it. Today, when American Jews think of Israel, they see conflict in the West Bank and Gaza, assertive and violent religious nationalism, Jewish orthodoxy imposed on a non-orthodox majority, Netanyahu's corruption, skyrocketing violence among Arab Israelis that National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir refuses to address because it serves his Jewish supremacist politics. And the last nine months, massive protests to derail judicial reforms that could undermine an already fragile democracy. Does any of that spark joy? Is the joy that is sparked by fantastic hummus, beautiful landscapes, and rich history enough to overcome all of that? Israel sparks stress. Israel sparks cognitive dissonance, social pressure. We are not joyful. And so we avoid it. We don't visit. We don't call. We don't write. In some congregations, they don't even talk about Israel because they fear it is too divisive. It does not spark joy. And so it is gone. Thanks a lot, Marie. (laughs) A generation ago, the relationship between Israeli Jews and American Jews was very different. Fifty years ago tonight, on the Jewish calendar, Israel was on the brink of destruction on Yom Kippur. Casualties mounted, equipment ran low, morale was shaken. Not 30 years after the end of the Holocaust, another Jewish disaster seemed imminent. The Yom Kippur War did not bring anyone joy, but few American Jews considered it disconnection. If anything, they were more committed than ever. One key difference between 1973 and 2023, Marie Kondo was born in 1984. (laughs) I do not remember the Yom Kippur War because I was not yet born. Two thirds of Americans alive today were born after 1973. Most Israelis do not remember the Yom Kippur War, since three-quarters of them were not born yet either. In my lifetime, post-Yom Kippur War, Israel has not been under existential threat from invading armies. Its three greatest dangers today are Iranian nuclear weapons, trying to swallow the West Bank and choking on it, and suicide by civil war. Whether we care for Israel, or have become disconnected, or we strongly reject what is being done in our name by the Jewish state, 
We do not wish ill on people there who are part of our world Jewish family. You can love a spouse, you can be separated and alienated from a spouse, you can certainly divorce a spouse, but none of those mean that you hate them and want them destroyed. This High Holidays, we are exploring complicated relationships, connections that can be hard to live with and hard to live without. Yom Kippur is dedicated to relationship repair, apologizing for our mistakes and finding it in our hearts to forgive others and ourselves. We agree with the Jewish tradition that the first step is interpersonal repair and then we refocus step two. Instead of looking above and beyond for cosmic forgiveness, we look inside to see if we are ready to let it go and be at one with ourselves. We look backward so that we can live forward. Therefore, before we look forward to our relationship with Israel, the land, the state, and the people, we need to go back to where the Jewish story began, in Israel and everywhere else. The land of Israel, or the land of Canaan, or the Levant, or Palestine, or between the river and the sea, that is where the Jewish people started in the first millennium BCE. We began as Judeans from Judah, Yehudim from Yehudah. We spoke Yehudit, Jewish, according to the Book of Kings. After Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BCE, the Judean elite were taken into exile in Babylonia, but they stayed Yehudim, Judeans, or even Jews, as they asked in Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of our God in a foreign land? In time, some Judeans returned to the land and some stayed in Babylonia, the first Jewish diaspora. For the latter, Jerusalem was a place of attention and pilgrimage, but not home. This was the beginning of a new Jewish tradition, Judeans beyond Judah, Jewish religion and culture outside Jerusalem. In the 2,500 years since then, there have been many complicated relationships between Israel and Diaspora Judaism. Messianism hoped to magically restore the kingdom of David. The traditional Passover song, Eliyahu Hanavi, hopes for Elijah to arrive, Imoshiach ben David, with the Messiah, the son of David. Some Diaspora Jews moved to Israel at the end of their life to pray, to die, and to be first in line for the resurrection. The Talmud claims that at the time of resurrection, those buried elsewhere will roll through underground tunnels and then pop up alive in Jerusalem. So why not be buried at the front of the line? Since modern Zionism began in the late 19th century, thousands of Jews have moved to live in Israel, not just to die there. Some came by enthusiastic choice, some came as refugees. Even after the losses of the Holocaust and mass expulsions from Arab nations, today the majority of the world's Jews still live outside of the Jewish homeland. Israel is home to seven of our six million. The reality is even more complex. Most Israeli Jews have personal and historical roots outside the land of Israel. Sherwin Wine once quipped that Israel is an unusual homeland. In what other homeland do people ask, where are you from? <laughs> and in a comparison, over half of the world's Armenians also live in diaspora outside of Armenia. But is diaspora the right word for what we experience today? 
The historical term for Jewish dispersion was galut, exile. Exiles belong somewhere else. Exiles want to return. An exile's identity is defined by their origins. Diaspora has a different meaning. Dia, as in diagram, means spreading out. And spore is like seeds. Seeds that set down root and grow differently in new soil and sun, that is a more organic, a more vibrant image than exile. A diaspora still envisions a center, dispersed from a central original point, able to return to a homeland. What is my family homeland? Is it the United States, land of my and my parents' birth and citizenship, my mother tongue and my native culture? Is my homeland the old country of my ancestors, my father's family roots in Syria, my mother's roots in Belarus and Lithuania? Am I jumbled up enough to claim to be a citizen of the world, roots simultaneously everywhere and nowhere? Or is my homeland the birthplace of the Jewish people, a country I have visited a dozen times but never lived in? There are times I feel like a diaspora from Detroit, rooting for my hometown teams when I've lived here for 20 years. If we ask each other, where are you from? We will get many answers, and we celebrate those diverse answers. The Jews dispersed to many places, and we have also dispersed from many places that are all our roots, not only Israel. Yet our roots definitely include Israel too. In 2019, on our trip to secular Israel, which we'll be repeating this December, one of the most meaningful stops was at an ancient synagogue that had been lost for a thousand years. The synagogue was beautiful, the mosaics on the floor were beautiful, but even more beautiful was the fact that they were setting up chairs for a bar mitzvah to take place later that day. An ancient synagogue, a modern bar mitzvah, all in the same place. It was electric, it was moving, it was our roots further back. If we are part of a world Jewish people, then we must relate to Israel in some way. We know that there are many differences between American Jews and Israeli Jews. American Judaism has created a dozen liberal Jewish denominations, but those denominations have not taken root in Israel. There, Jews tend to identify as some variety of Orthodox, or Chiloni, secular, or Masorti, traditional. Masorti also means the synagogue I do not go to is Orthodox. But when I do go, like on Yom Kippur, the synagogue is Orthodox even if I am not. In America, Orthodox Jews are 10% of the Jewish population, as they have been for decades. Surveys run in 1990, 2001, 2013, and 2020 all show between 9 and 11% Orthodox in America. In Israel, the Orthodox population is over 20% and is growing both in proportion and in pushiness. <laughs> we American Jews hear Hebrew once in a while, like on Yom Kippur, while they speak it every day. That may be one problem for liberal religious Judaism there. Here, you can keep the traditional Hebrew and rely on creative translation to soften the dissonance between ancient text and modern value. There, they easily understand what the prayers actually mean. We in America live as a minority in a non-Jewish culture. Their calendar is the Jewish calendar. There is never a conflict between work and Yom Kippur. There is no need to sneak a high holiday glance at Israeli sports scores. 
School breaks are always during Hanukkah and Passover, by design. The majority of American Jews are Ashkenazi background, connected to Yiddish in Europe. The majority of Israeli Jews are non-Ashkenazi, mostly from Arabic experiences in North Africa and the Middle East. We live in a country with a written constitution and a separation of religion and government, to some degree. Israel has neither. Most Israeli Jewish 18-year-olds are drafted into the army since Israel has to protect itself. Most American Jewish 18-year-olds go to college, and we rely on general American police and armed forces for our security. American Jews live in a huge country of 3.5 million square miles from sea to shining sea, while Israelis live in 8,000 or 10,000 square miles, depending on your borders. Imagine all the Jews in America living in Massachusetts or Maryland. For some, that would be wonderful. For others, claustrophobic. The difference between being 2% of the population and being 80% of the population was dramatized for me some years ago when I visited Israel during Hanukkah Christmas season. In Jerusalem, all the public symbols were menorahs and dreidels on street posts. The Muzak was all Hanukkah music, all the holiday decorations everywhere. The only place it was different was if you went into the Christian quarter of Jerusalem, and there was Santa and red and green and carols. I almost went just for the homesickness, you know? <laughs> I hadn't heard those songs in too long. Of course, there are also many similarities between Israeli Jews and world Jewry. We're connected to the same history. We read or do not read the same Hebrew Bible as our founding literature. We celebrate the same holidays, even if we celebrate them somewhat differently. Both Israeli and American Jews have roots remembered in the global Jewish dispersion. The old country and old traditions in Yiddish, Ladino, Arabic, they mean a lot to both of us. In truth, they are us and we are them. Thousands of American-raised Jews now live in Israel, and thousands of Israelis live in America. Both Israeli and American Jews have a substantial population that is not conventionally religious. They celebrate Hanukkah and Passover with their family, they go to synagogue rarely, if at all. They make their own choices about their own Jewish lives. Here at Kol Hadash, we use Israeli music like Erev Shoshoshanim and Lu Yehi. We enjoy Israeli food. We appreciate Israeli art and creativity. And kibbutz Jews were doing secular and humanistic Judaism a generation before we started. And perhaps most important, both Israeli Jews and world Jewry both claim the excuse of Jewish time to be late. <laughs> I will note that Israeli special forces managed to arrive on time, and American Jewish funeral homes start memorials exactly on time. It can be done. <laughs> you may or may not have noticed that I have not yet said the word Palestinian in this talk, 20% of Israeli citizens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of more live in the West Bank and Gaza under Israeli control. Our complicated relationship with Israel is about more than just American Jews and Israeli Jews. Our Torah reading this evening from Exodus 23 describes the divine promise of the land, including expelling its inhabitants to make room for the Israelites to be in charge. 
Some Israeli Jews see this promise and the Torah's narrative as justification for their claims to all the land, including what the world calls the West Bank, but they call Yehuda, Judea, to make a more ancient claim. That divine promise, by the way, does not appear in the Israeli Declaration of Independence. That declaration did promise this, to foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants, to ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all of its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex, to guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. For secular Israelis, that passage from their Declaration of Independence is now a holy text, and they parade it on posters at their rallies and protests. They recite it as additions to their Passover seders. The belief in the promised land is the root of the judicial overhaul that threatens Israeli democracy. The settlements, the occupation of the West Bank, the orthodox right-wing parties in the government, they're all connected. Religious settlers do not want the Supreme Court to provide even minimal restrictions on building on private Palestinian land because, they claim, the land is Jewish by divine promise. Jewish supremacists do not want a government for all the land's inhabitants, whether in two separate states or in one political state for two ethnic nations. What they want is one non-democratic state from the river to the sea, run by and for Jews, and they have run riot for years sometimes in response to violence, sometimes to assert dominance and intimidate Palestinian neighbors. The ultra-Orthodox do not want a Supreme Court that can demand their youth be drafted into the army or national service alongside non-kosher Jews, or that can force their schools to teach basic knowledge for 21st century citizenship. There's a very wry Israeli joke that in Israel, one-third of the population serves in the army, one-third works, and one-third pays taxes. The problem is it's all the same one-third that does all three. <laughs> and that one-third is now refusing to accept a government that does not represent them and their commitment to democracy, at least democracy for themselves, if not clearly for all the land's inhabitants. Palestinians are less than fully real for most American Jews and most Israelis. To many American Jews, Palestinians are either terrorists or terrorist sympathizers who are rabidly anti-Semitic and demonize Israel on college campuses through the BDS movement to destroy Israel, or else Palestinians are a PR problem and a democracy dilemma. In legal limbo for decades, they have no meaningful voice in any power controlling their lives. The most recent Palestinian Authority election was in 2006, and they also have no voice in Israeli military rule. American Jews see the Palestinian problem like Jefferson describes slavery, holding a wolf by the ears. It's not very comfortable, but you don't dare let it go. There are clearly human rights and democracy issues, but what can be done? For many Israeli Jews, the Palestinians are a difficult yet mostly distant problem. Most Israeli cities and towns are Jewish or Arab, but not both. Most Israeli Jews do not speak Arabic, and they expect Palestinians of Israeli citizenship to know English or Hebrew. They largely live separate lives. American Jews seeing Palestinians as a theoretical problem do not appreciate that the Israeli fear of danger is real. Just the Friday before this Rosh Hashanah, a bomb was planted in a park in Tel Aviv. 
And Israelis are not imagining when they remember terror bombings, shootings, and stabbings of the past decades and recent months. What is also real is the lived experience of the Palestinians. Without much hope or prospects for self-determination, it's not just an abstract dilemma or a distant issue that occasionally flares up. For them, it is every day. The most challenging difference between American Jews and Israeli Jews, the source of many of our relationship complications, is the question of power. Power over others and power to rule ourselves. For most of our history, Jews lived as minorities under the ultimate control of others. At times, we ran Jewish communal affairs, but we could not make war or peace. We could not conquer territory or rule others. We could not enact laws and impose them by force. Under the Maccabees, we had a window of about 100 years of real independence. We minted coins with menorahs on them. We conquered other peoples and forcibly ruled them. And we wound up in bitter civil conflicts that weakened us. Otherwise, in Jewish history, we managed under Persian and Roman empires, Islamic empires in Iraq and North Africa, Christian empires in Constantinople and Rome, multi-ethnic European empires in the Balkans and Central and Eastern Europe. Centuries of experience as a minority under tolerance at best, oppression at expulsion at worst, do not prepare you to govern generously. Nor does it prepare you to manage diverse and mutually contradictory Jewish opinions, politics, and lifestyles in one community. The American Jewish experience is also a break with Jewish history. The last 200 years have seen Jews live in democracies in Western Europe and the Americas. Most American Jews do not follow Jewish religious law. We do not even use the minimal self-government we managed in ghetto and shtetl. We do not have to. The Orthodox can do their thing, and we can do ours. We have no legal power to enforce a particular definition of Jewish identity, but we do have voices in our government because we live in a democracy. America is not 11th century Baghdad or 16th century Poland, where we needed court Jews to finagle stability from feudal lords. American Jews are 2% of the population, but we are 8% of the Senate, and 6% of the House. State and local government and their elected officials welcome our volunteering, our donations, and our votes. Intermarriage has strengthened our position. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff, spouses of President Biden's grandchildren, and former President Trump has Jewish grandchildren too. Even more important than access to power is protection by law and constitution and the power to vote. Like Jewish power, Jewish citizenship is relatively new. I am not at all blasé about the challenges American democracy faces today, just as the thousands of Israelis protesting in their streets take challenges to their democracy very seriously. Democratic values, even if they are new, are vital for the success of Jews everywhere, both in America and in Israel. And that is why this complicated relationship is worth working on like any complicated relationship. We need each other, and we need to not take the other and what they bring to our partnership for granted. After 30 years of marriage or 75 years of a state of Israel, the relationship can become part of the background, an unchanging landscape. It can be simply an assumed part of the furniture. But we are always changing, each of us, 
and both of us and the relationship between us. In any relationship between American Jews and Israeli Jews or between two individuals, we are not building bridges between solid ground. We are stretching a rope across two boats at sea, each one moving and changing. That's true for American and Israeli Jewry and for any two individuals maintaining a relationship as we will see more tomorrow. Some forgiveness, some accommodation, some acceptance of difference is necessary for the relationship to survive its complications. No Marie Kondo, sometimes a complicated relationship does not spark joy. It sparks tension. It sparks anger and frustration. It sparks sadness. It's not only about the sparks of joy to have a deep relationship. Israel is Netanyahu, and Israel is also thousands of Israeli Jews resisting Netanyahu and his yahoos. American Jews are religious and secular, rich and economically challenged, organized and anarchic, and so too are Israeli Jews. Israel today is nothing like the fledgling country facing military annihilation in the Yom Kippur War. It could be destroyed by Iranian nukes, by falling apart in a civil conflict, or by trying to swallow the West Bank and choking politically, ethically, and demographically. For 20 years after the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993, I thought the solution of two states for two people was both preferred and possible. Today, I see little hope of that resolution. And I also see little hope of one democratic Israelistine that supports the national cultures of two people. I will not divorce Israel because they are us and we are them in so many ways. Part of the Jewish family, diverse and divided each in our own ways. Instead, I will work with those of like mind and values to keep a relationship to help them get to their next election when the energy of pro-democracy protest can be translated into votes, and we will see if the lessons in democracy are extended to their Palestinian neighbors and subjects. We are both in uncharted waters in 2023, ruling ourselves and others, integrating democratic values into Jewish life, trying to talk to each other despite growing apart. But talk we will. You do not choose your family for good or for ill. And if we are part of the Jewish people, then Israeli Jews are part of us. Thank you for listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. To learn more, support, and membership to Kol Hadash, visit kolhadash.com. To learn more about secular humanistic Judaism, visit shj.org.